Hello and welcome to a later than usual edition of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the control room with apologies for the tardiness, but hoping and expecting that will it will have all been worth the wait. Lots happening on episode 47, including a special guest co-host who we'll meet in a moment, Adrian Logue, serving a one-week suspension for mentioning the FedEx. Oh, I jest, of course. That's not true. Uh, Adrian simply has another commitment today. So while we certainly miss him, there is an upside because what it does mean is we get to spend the next hour or so in the company of Sydney-based course architect and fellow golf nerd, I think I can say quite comfortably, Harley Cruz. Harley, good to have you aboard today. Looking forward to chatting all things golf and the environment. Going to be a, a really interesting one today. Thank you, Rod. Great to be here, sitting in the large chair that's been left behind by Mr. Logue. <laughs> and those giant shoes that he left there. For, you know he doesn't wear those. They're just clown shoes that he leaves here in case they've ever got to be filled to make the next person feel inadequate. No, not at all. I did say one time, I did threaten him with getting you on as a guest co-host, and now here we are. So thank you for organising that, Adrian. I hope you're not too nervous. Uh, our special guest today is a young woman, woman who you probably haven't heard of, but whose work in the game might be more important in the long term than any player or administrator you care to name. Kate Torgerson is the founder, CEO, secretary, accountant, fleet manager, mechanic, and any other role you can think of at the Environmental Golf Solutions, a company that she launched in 2013, and where, as that intro suggests, she is the one and only employer and employee. I think I have that right. I better check. Kate's here to tell us a bit about the business, but also the relationship more broadly between the environment and the game. Kate, welcome and thanks. I was particularly encouraged to note this week that we had to delay our interview by a day because you're busy. Marginally inconvenient for us, but in the bigger picture, a good sign, I think. Has that always been the case, or is golf as an industry becoming more proactive about its environmental role and responsibilities? Uh, thank you, Rod, and hi, Harley. Uh, it's great to be a part of the program. And uh, yes, I am extremely busy at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that the industry has, uh, I suppose, in, well, since COVID started, it's really taken off. Um, but as a whole, last probably a few years, the um, environmental side is really, uh, really taking off in the golf course world in Australia. Why since COVID? I'm interested in that. Any thoughts? Well, I, my main thought would be that, uh, uh, particularly in Melbourne, we've had a lot more time to stay at home and think about things. Um, I know golf course maintenance is still an essential service, but um, there's a lot of courses that have had to cut staff, cut numbers. So, my belief is maybe they've got a little bit more time to do a bit, bit of research, see what's happening in the industry, and uh, hopefully see some of the articles and good stuff I've been putting out there and uh, giving me uh, a lot of business and making me busy. Never waste a good crisis. I'm glad you mentioned articles because I wanted to read something from one of your articles that I found on your website this morning, and this is a starting point because then we can explain to people what it is you actually do to be busy. <laughs> so we haven't got to that part yet. So this is a piece, I'm not sure when you wrote this, and it just started like this very simply, environmental polluters. That's what someone said to me about my, about golf courses when I began my career in the turf industry back in the early 2000s. I think it's probably fair to say, Kate, that's still a fairly popular opinion and image amongst non-golfers about the game. Uh, indeed, definitely hear that a lot. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, when I first started in the, in the career, that uh, I did hear that and sort of a lot of people saying, why do you want to work on a golf course if you want to work in uh, environmental industry. To duck off on a quick rabbit hole here for a moment, Harley, is that something you've found as well? When you tell people you're in the golf course design business, do they automatically tag you as an environmental rapist? We know it's one of the problems of the game, that outside the game, its image is very different to what we see from within, isn't it? Correct, it is. And I think uh, sometimes we might get caught up in our own world, but I I find that, you know, being a landscape architect originally, and that's where I've come from, from sort of, you know, tertiary training, is having more landscape architects and more professionals like Kate in our industry actually help our industry. And I think uh, I haven't come up against too many anti-golfers, so to speak, but there's always questions often asked and, and, and some people might judge without knowing the facts. And then when you start to talk about some of the facts, then you can sort of start to put out there um, some of the reality around golf courses rather than these myths that might be perceived. I remember in the mid-90s, there was an anti-golf, global anti-golf movement, I think I know, called. I tried to get them on the podcast way G back then. G Gagum. Yeah, Gagum. Could never forward. find them. Yeah. And, and they went throughout you know, Southeast Asia interviewing various different uh, superintendents and looking at construction, and they sort of disappeared. But the reality is, I think, you know, there are ways that golf can improve its game uh, in, in the whole environmental aspect, and, and that's where Kate's doing some great things. Yeah. 
as as is so much the case with some of those image problems we talk about, there's reasons people think those things about golf. They did did the global anti golf movement have some legitimate points to make, particularly at the time in the '90s in Southeast Asia, where I think there was a booming golf development that wasn't necessarily didn't necessarily always have the environment top of mind. No, and it mightn't have had the environment or even local culture at top uh-huh. of mind either. And I think so. If you if you come in and sort of you know push this large uh, recreational space onto a culture and you haven't respected the local culture or local environment, um, then then I think there's there's a lack of respect or, of of the game into these new territories, you know, these pioneering areas. And you can't just put in a certain model that works somewhere else on the other side of the world into, you know, a, a, a local country like that. You've got to look at the whole um, environment, geography, uh, culture, and and interweave golf into these into these places indeed harley and i are both golfers kate are you a golfer um i call myself a fair weather golfer yeah and uh in melbourne at the moment there's not a lot of that so <laughs> <laughs> well you're not allowed uh, to play when, I, when moment, i get anyway. time and when it's warm i do like to get out there and uh yeah i think that's why i uh, got into vegetation because i'm always in it <laughs> indeed do we as golfers bring a bias that's dangerous our starting position is obviously that we like golf we want it to stay and do discussions about the environment involving golfers do we bring a naturally biased slant that's not necessarily looking objectively at the genuine up and downsides of golf courses as an environmental element i think it's quite interesting actually i've just participated in a, a program that is not in the golf industry um it was a program where we pitched a wild idea, um, which is still happening. And there was about 70 participants. And um, the amount of feedback that I received about the um, program to sort of reintroduce biodiversity to golf courses, the amount of amazing feedback that I received, um, yeah, it was just really great to see. You know, I had people saying, oh, maybe I'll take up golf now because we can, you know, go and see all the little wildflowers and, um, you know, all the rare species that a lot of these golf courses do provide habitat for. So um, I think as a, and as a whole, the industry just needs to sell the, the mm-hmm. good stuff that we're doing. Um, I know I've definitely, through my research for the articles, found a lot of courses doing a lot of good programs, but it's just not being put out there in the industry um, or the wider community. Sadly, it's somewhat amusing, but the reality is the reality for those people who do go and take up golf to have a look at the wildlife and the fauna, Harley and Flora, is that we as golfers are going to tell them to get on with it. <laughs> You're playing too slow. There's no time to stop and appreciate the vegetation. There's a whole bunch of us behind you that need to get moving, so uh, some need there. What about golfers, Kate? Do we as a group appreciate, understand, think about, generally speaking, the environment that we do play in, or are they simply playing fields in a location uh, and we pay almost no notice for the most part to all of those nice things? Uh, But you're interested in the plants and the animals and the the stuff that's going on off the fairways. I think there's there's definitely a bit of a mix. Um, I know there's a, a lot of the courses that I work on, there's a lot of members that definitely just want to be there and play golf. Um... But through the projects that I've done, um, there's been a lot of volunteer groups, a lot of members that are helped out weekly, um, you know, and, and they were just there to play golf beforehand. But now they've really shown an appreciation for, um, you know, the vegetation on golf courses and, um, you know, they're learning themselves. So, yeah, I think there's a bit of a mix out there. What do you do, Kate? We danced around this issue from the start of the podcast. What exactly is it that you do? What is golf? Sorry, now I've forgotten the name of your company. Golf Environmental Services, Environment Environmental Golf, environmental Solutions. golf Solutions. Tell us about what environmental golf is. Pitch me the idea. Um, it's a it's a very broad business, I suppose. It can go anywhere, um, but at the moment, um, since I've started, my sort of role at golf courses has been to consult. Um, in converting mown areas into native vegetation. So not only um, are you obviously bringing in the indigenous vegetation, but you're also saving costs on mowing, labour, chemical, water usage. Um, There was, I think, a golf course up on the border that they found out they were spending at least $150,000 on rough mowing. 
Um, so by finding that out, we were able to then convert to a lot of native vegetation. So that $150,000 plus the amount of man labour to look after that was put into the plane services. Harley, you're nodding furiously as Kate's talking there. What is it that's touching a nerve with you? Oh, I think, yeah, it's something that I sort of identified probably 20, 30 years ago. Nearly every single golf course in the country has an area of turf that's mown out of habit rather than mown out of necessity for the game of golf. And it's just little corner areas that, as it's just been out of habit. It's, that's, what we've all, that's what we've always done. Um, and we just leave it like that rather than thinking about like Kate's saying, thinking about every square metre out there, what's needed for playing the game and what's not needed. And these unwanted areas that, that are mown out of habit, if you can actually take the turf out and convert them to a non-mown, naturalised area, um, nearly every golf course in the country has that potential some way or form, some more than others, obviously. And Kate's talking about an area where the golf course can save $150,000 of, of man hours and labour hours uh, looking after these areas. And it's amazing too, once you take the machines off these areas and naturalise them, even a small area might just go end up being long grass instead of mown grass. It has some sort of habitat potential. Skeeters and gators and that sort of thing generally don't hit your ball in there. Kate, I want you to have a think about, from an environmental perspective, what are the cons in golf? And I'm going to guess maintained turf is one of them. And while you're thinking about that, Harley, I'm going to ask you, does this play into our golf course architecture favourite topic? 80% of problems on 80% of golf courses could be fixed with tree management and mowing lines. Is that what we're talking about partly? Well, I'm not sure it was 80%, but certainly there's a, <laughs> the, the, I think nearly every golf course needs to sort of, I guess it's almost like an audit of its of its, um, of its its ground plane of, of what's what in terms of square metres is irrigated, mown and needed for the game mm-hmm. and then look at the areas that are not needed and say, okay, well, we really don't need to be mowing that uh, We or, you know, we, we could do something else with that land. I mean, in terms of square metres, a typical 18-hole golf course will have in the range of 20 to 26 hectares of mown grass and the rest of the land is is can be a non-mown situation or maybe rough mown once or twice a year, um, particularly if we keep the irrigation off it and we don't fertilise it or, or water it. So, you know, if you've got a, a golf course that's on 70 hectares, you've got a, you know, 40 to uh, 50 hectares of ground that could be naturalised in some way. So I think it's just looking at the broad asset of the place within the fence and saying, well, what can we do here to improve the game? That's well over 50% of the the, the total area could be Correct. devoted to, uh, to something that I think we all agree is a good thing. That's native, natural, indigenous planning. Kate, what about that question? What is the? Am I right in thinking that that the machinery, the compaction, the fuel, uh, all of the things that go into mowing turf are they the, the the downside, for want of a better term, environmentally of golf courses? And is what Harley's talking about and helping to mitigate some of that? Does that help to right that balance? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, predominantly, you know, we all golf courses have been seen to using a lot of water, chemicals, all that kind of stuff, but. Um, I think nowadays, even the chemical companies, the um, uh, or the equipment companies, they're turning more environmentally friendly. You know, now we see a lot of electric mowers go out. Um, so I think as an industry, we are looking to the more sustainable ways that we can manage our golf courses, um, and one of them is obviously to look in the um, out of play areas. And what you can do is that. Are we doing that for altruistic reasons? Is there a business case? Is it simply generational? And are those pressures coming from within golf itself to be more environmentally so or from outside? It would be wonderful if you said to me they were coming from within because it's kind of what golf needs to do, isn't it? As you mentioned before, golf needs to sell what its benefits are and we don't, we just don't do it. I think it's coming within. Um, I think typically overseas, I think the pressures have come from outside with um, their sort of chemical laws and all that, whereas in Australia, it's not as strict. Um, so I think it's all coming within the golf course industry. Um, definitely, um, I'm currently at the moment working with a TAFE in Melbourne to uh, write some biodiversity and turf management material. So, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be um, a regular um, sort of subject for young apprentices to actually learn as they come up through the ranks. You've been in the game a long time, Harley. You know Kate. I know that you've worked with Kate and that you regularly communicate with Kate about you. were just showing me a photo that you're going to send to Kate of something up here in Sydney, which will make her quite jealous by the sound of it. Has this always been the case? Uh, 
when you started in golf? Did we ever give this stuff a thought? And how has that transition happened? Is it simply generational? Younger people come into the industry who I think we all accept predominantly think more about the environment than our generation did and certainly more than our parents' generation did. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a younger generation have a, a greater um, environmental awareness going back to school days. And if they bring that through into their professional life out of curiosity and interest and want to be in the field, uh, I, th- I was really encouraged a couple of years ago, I went down to Melbourne and just by sheer coincidence, Kate was organising a meeting of like-minded uh, environmental managers from various different golf courses around Melbourne to come and have a look at some rough at raw Melbourne and some of the areas there. And 26 people turned up, and these people are all managing various different golf courses around suburban Melbourne, and their role is purely everything off the fairway edge. Um, that role of, of environmental course management off the fairway edge didn't really exist 20 or 30 years ago. It was, it was kind of done. It was sort of the job to do in autumn when the grass slowed down. There wasn't much else to do. And now you've got full-time professionals in, in numerous clubs uh, throughout Melbourne, uh, and that's all they do. They look after the, the, the vegetation areas full-time. So uh, a lot of knowledge has come in there. I think a lot of uh, realisation amongst clubs. And, yes, it might be the more privileged clubs that are, have things that they're looking after, but I think that whole thought process, education, knowledge, Kate is fantastic sharing knowledge with, with her local industry, and that was the point of that day in Melbourne, <coughs> at Royal Melbourne, that particular day was to get get people from these various different clubs together to talk about it and look at it. Um, and it was quite inspiring for me after not seeing this sort of uh, activity for a number of years, uh, seeing that happen. So that's sort of 20 or 30 years from when I started in the game where that didn't exist. And it's brilliant to see, and it's great to see it filter down, and it's great to see the knowledge getting spread and put out there. Mm. Were you environmentally minded when you started in the business? Yeah, I had a background in horticulture and landscape architecture, and that was part of my motivation and drive to get into golf course industry. Uh, And the opportunity was given to me by Peter Thompson's company, Thompson, Wardrobe, Parrot. I came into that firm as a landscape architect because Peter and Michael and Ross valued um, everything off the fairway edge, shall we say, in these golf courses that they were doing in Australia and Southeast Asia. So... I spent the first few years cutting my teeth on landscapes of golf course uh, and probably brought young knowledge and environmental awareness that wasn't anywhere near the sophistication where, say, Kate is today and, and the younger generation, but it was probably cutting edge at the time into the field of golf design. I started to think that, you know, what would happen if um, the golf design profession didn't have landscape architects or didn't have environmental people involved? then there'd be something missing. And so you know, the great thing is that Peter's company created this role yeah. and recognised it. Yeah, Not necessarily through malice would we do the wrong thing, just through a lack of understanding and knowledge of what we're actually doing, which is generally the case, isn't it? it tends not, yeah. It's like breaching the golf rules. Most people don't cheat, but we all break the rules simply because we're ignorant of what's going on. Surely, Kate, uh, my humble club can't afford to be environmentally responsible. I can see the palatial compound that you're living in there, so your services are clearly well beyond us. You're rolling in money. You've probably got your own island somewhere. You must hear this a lot. Is there any truth to that? Does it cost a fortune to be environmentally responsible? I think so. As uh, I think it was one of my articles that I wrote. Um, it's as simple as putting a rough mower away and you're already doing uh, something that's more environmentally friendly. So it really does cost little. Um a lot of smaller courses, um, a lot of them, especially country courses, uh, if you walk outside the rough, they've already got native vegetation there. Um, a lot of them just aren't aware of what, what it is and how to manage it. So um, if you've got it there, it's a lot cheaper. Yeah, stick uh, stick with it. What sort of resistance? What, do you get resistance? What do people say when you come to a golf course for the first time? Somebody at the club has rung you and said, we want you to come and have a look at our course, give us an assessment, and we'll talk about what we might do going forward? I imagine there's a range of reactions from different people at the club. What are, the, what are some of the resistances that you meet in that, uh, in that uh, process? Generally, I'm lucky. I meet with the people who want me there, <laughs> and they have to deal with the people who don't. Great start, Kate. That's why you're still in business seven years down the track. Good thinking. <laughs> but, um, yeah, obviously, yeah, there's a lot of people that uh, are a bit concerned when uh, – Either I do come onto the course or I am mentioned because, you know, once you mention you're going to add more vegetation, especially grasses, then they get a bit a bit scared that it's going to, um, you know, slow play, they'll lose their balls. Um, however, that's, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to sort of incorporate the environment and the golf game 
um, to ensure that it's a sustainable future for the game, really. Um, and a lot of the management techniques we do, um, like, for example, burning, that actually will help the game because it opens the areas up um, and you can find your ball easier. So there's a lot of different management techniques out there that we use to help the game. Can golf have a sustainable future? Are we kidding ourselves? There are those who will tell us, and we'll talk specifically about one young lady who uh, is the new version of the global anti-golf movement. Surely, I know you've had a chance. I don't mean to, to laugh at her. I think she makes some valid points. But can golf have a sustainable future, Kate, or are we kidding ourselves? Is that a realistic goal? Um, I definitely think it's realistic. Um I've been in talks and I've actually seen a golf course up on the Gold Coast that has gone 100% organic. Um, and, yeah, it's not an 18-hole course. It doesn't get the traffic like a lot of courses, but it's shown that you can have a golf course without using chemicals. Um, and it's just a matter of taking that risk sometimes, um, seeing how it works, um, and then just, yeah, obviously it's educating the golfers in um, being able to get the same quality playing services as you would if you use the harsher chemicals. Mm. Denmark's gone completely organic, if I'm not mistaken. Is that legally, Harley? I think they're not, they've banned the use of chemicals in all industries, golf included. Yeah, certain you know, certain European nations are fairly strict on a lot of things around golf, um, and golf still manages to survive. But I think it's you know climate, uh, environmental uh, conditions, you know, growing turf. On the Gold Coast might be very different to growing turf, obviously in Denmark or Melbourne. So it's it's different environments and and different issues. But obviously, if we can again break the habits, I guess break the habits of of various different things we do, like a bit of disruption to the way we look at these courses, perhaps uh, that and maybe and COVID's making you think about the Kate was saying before, think about these things differently. Um, and and I think too the in the Australian context, the Australian turf management industry is. You know, it, it doesn't waste money. It, it's very economical the way that they use use our resources to to provide these courses for for, for golfers to play. So, I think uh, a lot of the the superintendents and the greenkeeping staff are always looking at ways of doing it better. And I think there's a, often that view view and uh, and are very efficient the way they do things in this country. But there's always room for improvements. And a lot of people have that if they have that mindset, we how can we do this better? Um, I think, which, which which I think we do. I think we're on on a good good path. Mm. Can we have Harley? We've talked about this a million times. It's that old chestnut in many ways. Can we have the conditions that many in golf have come to expect in terms of perfect playing surfaces? Uh, playing surfaces so good you actually feel bad if you take a divot. Hence, that's why I like to hit a lot of thin shots. I'm jesting, of course. I'm just because I'm a bad golfer. Can we have that and sustainability? We've, we know what we're going to see at East Lake this week on the PGA Tour is a bright green golf course with bright white sand and people all over the world who play golf, and we'll do this again in November when the Masters comes around, will be pining to play on a golf course that's presented in such pristine condition. Is that uh, a worthwhile goal, and is it an achievable or sustainable goal for golf to look like that, or do we as golfers need to adjust? Is it achievable goal? I guess uh, these clubs show that it is. The scary thing is, at least for a week a year. Yeah, that's right, and uh, correct. And and you know, places like Augusta only played for a few months of the year, and with very few golfers. So, you know, week in, week out, with golf courses are doing fifty to sixty thousand rounds a year, uh, to try and achieve those sort of conditions is is not a sustainable model, and and nor a desirable model. And uh, and and so you know we've got to. Somehow, sort of modify this is this expectation that the the golf course should be perfectly green and and bunkers should be you know, white white and perfectly raked and all these sorts of things. So, and I and I think every golf club faces these challenges right through to the court, top courses in Australia of of expectations of members and and managing and communicating expectations of members. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when the President Cup was played at uh, Royal Melbourne last year, we saw. Not bright green fairways, but we saw green fairways, but off the fairway edge with this amazing dry, droughty, sandy, brown, golden roughs that just look stunning. And 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 I think that's possibly the role model for golf, and that's what we should be seeing on TV. And we see a bit of it with the British Lynx golf too. Britain has a dry summer, and they're they're playing off you know brown fairways. Um, so I think it's I think it's sort of keeping that communicate the, these communications going and sort of. 
letting members know um, what it takes to produce a golf course to a certain level. And ultimately, it comes down to cost. I mean, simply, you can throw a whole lot of money at it and you can have this bright green uh, golf course week in, week out, but it's going to cost a fortune. And that's not sustainable uh, for, the, for the business model, um, let alone the environmental model. Indeed. Kate, it's your turn to nod furiously, I can see, while Harley's talking there. I suppose technically none of what he or what we are talking about there has much to do with what you do directly, but it is all wrapped up into one, isn't it? What's what's the role you see for yourself in helping to educate golfers that perfect bright green conditions aren't the ideal? And as Mike Clayton has said many times, he's been a member at Metro for 40 years, he's yet to have a bad lie, and that is not a good thing, people. Not a good thing for golf, and it's not a good thing for golfers. I heard a uh, saying the other day is uh, gold is the new green mm-hmm. on golf courses. And I think that's uh, – it, it goes a long way to see where, um, particularly in Melbourne and on the sandbelt, where a lot of these golf courses are going right um, by managing their courses as a whole, um, you know, and, and saving the water um, for just their playing surfaces. So, um, yeah, I think gold is a new green is definitely a, uh, a good sustainable practice that we can um, look forward to going into the future. Mm. Hello, good people of the Talk and Golf listener world. I hope you're enjoying this wander off the beaten path with Kate Torgerson and Harley Cruz. There is plenty to chew on in the golf and environment world. No question about that. Now, while you're whiling away the time thinking about some of the bigger issues confronting golf than, say, how to stop coming over the top and hitting a slice, here is a great way to distract yourself. Whether you're rubbish at the game like me or unbelievably good at the game like the pros, there is no reason to not look good while you're doing it And in this digitally connected world we're now all living in, you can achieve that without even leaving the comfort of your own home. Talking Golf sponsor, thegolfsociety.com.au, have the very best brands in golf apparel, no matter your taste or budget. Men's and women's clothing and accessories, all in the one convenient online location, and a special $25 discount for Talking Golf listeners on their first purchase. To take advantage of that, head to thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf, just the one G in talking Golf, and get cracking on your new season look today. Well, we know you exist, Kate. How many of you are there in Australia and around the world helping to drive what's pretty important stuff for the game? Golfers never think beyond just golf. They only think about how they played Saturday, how the Greens were running on Wednesday afternoon, how their own game is going. The world outside of golf looks at golf and sees something very different to us. How many of you are there in the world helping golf to bridge this this gap? Golf at some point is going to have to take responsibility for itself, but I think you're probably doing most of the heavy lifting and people like you at the moment rather than golfers themselves. How many of you are there? Um, there's, there's quite a few of us around. Um they may not particularly do exactly what I do, but there's definitely a lot of good programs run on golf courses. Um, one that pops to mind is a program in the States called um, Monarchs in the Rough, and that's a conservation program that um, is run on golf courses where they've converted hundreds of acres into um, habitat for these monarchs, which is a moth. So, um, you know, there, there's definitely programs and people out there who are, um, you know, doing environmental projects on golf courses. Um, you know, we've been in talks with a course up in Queensland which run a program called Koalas on the Green uh, where they revegetate um, habitat for koalas, particularly injured koalas. Um, you know, the, the department says that an injured koala has to be placed back within five kilometres of where it was found. And um, as we know, in urban environments, generally that may be a golf course. Um, so I think we can be seen as sort of like wildlife um, sort of sanctuaries in a sense. Um, and we're also in talks at the moment with a professor from a university about running a conservation program for turtles up through uh, the southeast. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of interest from the outside world to use our our spaces as a uh, conservation program. Koalas on the green, Harley. If we could teach them how to fix pitch marks, hey, there's a win-win, isn't there? Give them some divot fixing. No, not going to happen. Don't think it's going to happen. That's uh, that is true, and I guess it's probably one of the overlooked aspects. And we'll come to this now. There are people in the world, Kate, who say that 
the world is a worse place because of the existence of golf. One of whom I sent you a video, and I can't remember the lady's last name. Abby is her name. She's got a YouTube channel. She's anti-golf. She wants to see golf disappear from the world. She's not alone in that, um, as as Harley mentioned, there's been other movements in the past. I think you've got to watch her video. I haven't seen the whole 12 minute thing. I did see her first video. Uh, how do we deal with that as golf? Have we just done a bad message of, bad job of selling the message of golf? Or does Abby raise some legitimate issues that golf needs to confront? If we just pretend everything's great about golf, are we going to move forward? Um, I did. I did watch the video and I did have to chuckle throughout it. A bit. Um, I think, she, yeah, she definitely does bring up some points, but um, I think it was definitely one-sided. And if she actually, I suppose, researched a bit further into the industry, she would see how well we're doing. Um, a lot of the comments that she made, I think if there wasn't a golf course there, there would be a housing development. So I definitely know I would prefer to live with a golf course surrounding me than a thousand more houses. What about a park? Clover Moore wants it just to be a park. Makes some sense, doesn't it? Um, just get rid of the golfers and let people walk around and, and picnic on the grass. Why can't we do that? It's better, uh, isn't it? We could do that, but I think uh, golf is also great for the mental health of a lot of uh, a lot of people, not just Australians. Um, so I think there's definitely uh, yeah, there's aspects to that as well. That environmental where that bridges there, Harley. That's interesting stuff, isn't it? Golf as a game and what it does. Not well. There's a bunch of aspects. Golf is an industry. So Moore Park makes money for Clover Moore's council, contributes money to the council. And she might not like the game, but I'm sure that everybody in the council likes the money that comes. So that's a reality, whether you give it much credence or not. But that mental health, sociability. These are the things that we don't sell about golf, don't we? Outside of golf, people think Tiger Woods, Adam Scott, Kari Webb, private jets. Uh, heaps of money, overwatered golf courses, pristine conditions, a bubble of incredibly elite rich people who play golf behind fences. It's it, it's interesting that the environmental and that image are actually hand in hand. They've kind of got nothing to do with each other, but the truth about golf is much, much broader than that. We just do a shocking job of selling it. Yeah, I think it, it, there's a whole lot of deep, different uh, things going on. And I think uh, in this COVID world, I mean, the amount of people getting out of the house to go and play golf um, for physical reasons and mental reasons, it's been enormous. And, and golf courses are busy, you know, sunrise to sunset at the moment for that very thing, except unfortunately in Melbourne where it's been locked down. But, you know, there's people sitting in Melbourne going stir crazy right yeah. now because they can't get out into this open green space, socialise with their friends, do a bit of exercise and, and have that, that time in, a, you know, playing the game in, in little white ball and, you know, whether you're completely turf, turf focused or looking at this, things starting to flower in spring as they're, they're popping up around the golf course. I think there's uh, there's um, a whole lot of benefits of, of golf courses. And I, as Kate said before, I mean, in some of these places, if the golf courses weren't there in our society, it, they'd just probably be houses. I mean, if there were golf courses in the sand belt, that bit of, those bits of land would definitely be houses today and we wouldn't have these green spaces that kind of interconnect like a bit of a tapestry through that urban environment. Um, that allows wildlife to move through so corridor is the corridors. Word often yeah, used, isn't yeah. it? There's a corridor of uh, plants and, and, and that's animals. a significant role of golf courses in the broader community. If it was turned into a park, the slasher would come out. It'd be slashed as mown grass. It'd be a few trees, and all this uh, stuff that Kate's talking about. These naturalised areas would disappear. So it's it's kind of golf's one of these sort of. Uh, business models for a large green space that that allow really good land management to occur. Um, and we talked about the area of turf and the area of naturalised areas. We, it, it's a sustainable model that allows a large green space uh, for recreation activity to occur with uh, hopefully with inputs from people like Kate and myself that has you know the, the environmental uh, vegetation habitat values to it. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a complex one. Does golf... Do, do a good job selling it. I think we're getting better. I think there's a recent hookup with the, the Golf Environment Organisation that's based out of North Berwick in Scotland. They're, they're tying up with a bit of initiative with the Australian Turf Management Association to profile 25 Australian golf courses from all over the country in different states and profile the environmental uh, benefits and the environmental projects that these golf courses are undertaking. So there's this thing starting to happen, um, which, yes, we could always do better, I think. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to get your thoughts on young Abby's video, but hold them for just a moment, Kate. Here's a question for you to think about whilst Harley's answering that one. Does golf belong everywhere? I watch the desert swing of the US tour every year and I shudder and I genuinely feel bad every time I look at the pictures of the golf courses in the desert. So have a think about whether golf belongs everywhere and golf's doable everywhere. Harley, while you tell me what you think of young Abby, the anti-golfer, and some of the, I know you watched the video and some of the points she makes. It's hard to argue with some of them. Well, her yeah, final conclusion, I, th- I'm sure. I think she raises concerns. If, if she's pricking the conscience of golf, I think that's not a bad thing. I think uh, a lot of these things can get a bit emotional, and, and I think it's clear, clear to, and the issue is to look at the facts of, of the industry. And unfortunately, some of the things were said in the video didn't quite have the facts. Uh, so I think it's important to really look at the facts. Uh, uh, are there bad examples of golf? Yes, there is. Uh, and you know, if you start to pull apart some of the examples of bad golf developments or, or bad practices that have, have occurred, then yes, you can target golf. But I think, uh, I think if you look at the good sides of things and, and start to look at the facts, the reality, I mean, it's, it's quite easy to sort of uh, bring up an emotional topic and show a golf course under construction, the image of a bulldozer and pushing all this dirt and things like this. And uh, it can conjure up some sort of man mastering over the landscape and all those sorts of things. But I think the, the reality is, is is quite different to what she's portraying. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Abby, does golf belong everywhere? Oh, sorry, Abby. God, I've got a couple of I called you Abby. I, might, I don't do this. I might even edit that out. That is a horrendous mistake. Don't, don't worry, Kate. I'm expected to be called Adrian That's, soon. So. You're lucky it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Kate, does golf belong everywhere or is it? And is it important for golf to recognise where it's got it wrong rather than have to sheepishly admit down the track? Do we as golf need to stand and say, listen, that was wrong, that was wrong, we got that wrong? Is that important as well? I definitely think so, yeah. I think um, golf shouldn't be everywhere, um, but there's a lot of areas also where there may be a golf course that is actually bringing in tourism, um, not only tourism, but it's also the heart of the community as well. Um, so I think there's a there's a big role there for courses in maybe a few areas that you think they shouldn't exist. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely I think as as a whole industry, we do need to uh, accept some of the mistakes that we have made. Um, but I think going forward, we are definitely heading in the right direction. If we're not our own harshest critics, Harley, do we not just leave ourselves open? to uh, being proven to be fools in some way. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think we've always got to ask ourselves, are we doing the right thing? Uh, can we, and and can, we, can we better at what we do? I think, uh, yeah, I, th- I think we just can't accept the norm. It just, it's a bit like accepting a little triangle of green grass we've been mowing for all these years out of habit and we don't need to be doing. We've got to just sort of, yeah, ask ourselves, can, can, we, can we do things better? Uh, and that's from... You know, golf course architects. It's 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 people like Kate in in what she's doing. It's the it's the superintendents. It's the golf clubs themselves, the management operations. You know, can we do this or better? And you know, I'm in the design of new holes or new golf courses from scratch. Um, and and then you go through to the other end where an ex, you know, existing golf course has been there for a hundred years, and we come in and we do work there. And I think it's just it's a matter of you know, can we do better? And by and large, I think yes, we can. And uh, and I think at the end of the day, too, golf is a business model for a piece of land, for a recreational activity. And, and um, if, if by doing things better we can save money, then why not jump at it? And I, I think a lot of the time, too, the sustainability issue is around the, 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 the dollar. Uh, the club's trying to you know, provide us uh, an activity for, for a particular fee and, and provide a facility to, for those to go and enjoy it. Um, and things things cost money p- to provide that, and so um, if we can save a dollar or, or spend a dollar wisely and improve our environmental role, and and also you know for these facilities perhaps be integrated with, with other land users around, you know, and as Kate was saying before, these these golf courses increasingly going to become more and more uh, valuable. Um, sanctuaries for for some of our wildlife as as urbanisation of our of our cities occurs. So, you know, the tortoise program, the koala program, um, 
a golf course sitting in Rose Bay being a, a stepping stone for bird life moving north and south along the east coast of Sydney. That's that's part of the role of these these places that we're involved with. You're dangerously close to touching a nerve there about golf learning to share the space, Harley. We better not go into that uh, just yet. Kate, one of the things that Mike Clayton often talks about is that uh, the role of trees in golf from an architecture point of view versus an environmental point of view obviously are two different things, and Harley and I might have a discussion about, and we have had discussions before about the role of trees in golf. The point Mike Clayton makes is that uh, at a lot of golf clubs in the past, there have been tree planting programs, and people said, well, these are native. We're in Melbourne. These trees are native gums from Western Australia, but they're native. We're not planting a, a, a plant from England here to try and make it feel like ye olde England. So that's fine. Is he right about that? Uh, are they as opposed to Indigenous plants? Is that the has that happened? And is that the is that a good a bad thing? And and does that need to be fixed in some places? It definitely needs to be rectified. Um, we all know that trees don't live forever, um, and a lot of these tree planting programs that happened in um, you know like the sixties and that the a lot of those species now have reached their um, lifespan and now uh, becoming a bit dangerous. Um, I think also uh, b- back then, the I suppose the education um, wasn't quite there. So a lot of courses may have just planted what they were donated by nurseries, by members, um, without knowing how big they grow, their growth habit, what damage they may do to the golf course, to playing lines. Um, so it really comes down to a lot of research on that species. Um, and that and that's where um, I think sticking to indigenous vegetation, um, planting that onto your golf course, I think that definitely will help. What's the difference between indigenous and native? They're the same thing, aren't they? It's all Australian. It's uh, yeah, we won't we won't go there with that one, but yeah, it's um, yeah, they're, they're very very similar. Um, native is obviously um, yeah, native to Australia. So as you said before could be a native which is um, Indigenous to Western Australia. So um, it's more site-specific, site which is Indigenous to that area. Mm. And that can actually be quite specific, can't it, Holly? We've talked about Royal Melbourne before and the role it plays with some of the flora they have on course, which exists nowhere else in Melbourne anymore. Correct. Only at the golf course. Or nowhere else in the world. Yeah. It's, it's the last remaining spot, bits and pieces of, of well, the only occurrence of these particular plants and and – so that was a unique situation by, I guess, turn that ground on golf courses allowed that plant material to be yeah, protected. Might be by accident, but we should still yeah. be uh, yeah. thankful that it's happened. Last thing, Kate, from me, for you, what does the perfect golf slash environment relationship look like? Can you point me to a course and say that's where the balance is perfect? Is there such a thing? Or like golf courses themselves, because it's a living, breathing thing, is it a constantly moving target? I guess. Definitely constantly moving. Um, Good no, news for you. That means, that means lots of coming back and lots of re- reassessing, and do, that's fantastic stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I think not not every course is the same, even on the sand belt. Um, you know, you can have Royal Melbourne and Victoria right next to each other, and they can be very different in terms of vegetation. Um, but I think, I think going forward, um, one mistake that we had in the past was I think in terms of revegetating people just thought of trees planting trees mm-hmm. but it's about the whole picture so we want to plant the understory the midstory the ground covers um, I think if if golf courses can get that relationship right um, then I think for the future it'll be definitely a lot easier for golf course managers rather than just having to um, rectify the planting of trees that was done 30 years ago. I know I said it was the last one, but I told a little fib there. It was an accident. I didn't mean to. I just thought of another question while I was talking. Have you seen a shift in people where you first arrived at a club and started doing some work and people were sceptical to where they've come around to say, you know what, this is much better now and I'm glad we did it. Does that happen? It would give me hope if it does, but it wouldn't surprise me if it doesn't either, unfortunately. Uh, no, it definitely does happen. So uh, one project that I've been working on for five years now where we converted uh, six hectares of mown grass into native vegetation. Um, when the program began, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of debate, a lot of sceptics, um, but as the years have gone on, as the areas have established, as the um, Indigenous vegetation is flowering, there's a lot more members now that are loving what they're seeing on the course and um, 
and also just educating them on the benefits of it. They understand now why we've done that. So yeah, it's um it's definitely it's it's great to see as well from my perspective to see golfers sort of understand why why my role is out there. And to take your photo off all the dartboards in the clubhouse there, that must be a nice feeling as well to, to no longer be considered. <laughs> yes, I, I have been uh, have been known as the native grass queen before. So, <laughs> and, and native grass queen. The other the other thing that Kate hasn't mentioned much. She touched on earlier was uh, the pyromaniac. Uh, the, the one. <laughs> Is, is, Kate, Kate's got a, re- a great reputation. Part of the management, this evolving, evolving uh, landscape, is all of a sudden it turns black once in a while, uh, and, and which is part of uh, traditional, I guess, vegetation management, and, and part fire. of what mm. Kate's been able to, to advance in quite a few golf courses in Melbourne, haven't you? The, the old uh, get out the matches and, and have a go at, and, and why do you do that, Kate? Um, yeah, you have got me there, Harley, the bit of a pyro in me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of the management tools that obviously we know has been used throughout Australia. Um, and, um, I think golf courses, uh, great examples that the vegetation that they have there, um, you know, they're, they're small pockets. So by burning them, um, we're sort of enhancing, germinating any seed that's in the soil there, but we're also reducing the weeds. Um, so yeah, there's a, it's, a, it's just another management technique that we use in the, I suppose, conservation industry that now I want to bring into the golf course industry. Wow. It, we've got Clates with his chainsaw, you with your matches. If we can come up with some sort of a, a thing for you, Harley, what you've got there is a, is a, um, superhero gang that makes a cartoon, <laughs> couldn't you, out of, uh, out of all that. Is that, is that a more common practice these days, burning, Kate? Sounds like you must do a fair bit of it because Harley's accusing you of being the pyromania. <laughs> and, and it, ha- it, it definitely, yeah, definitely is a lot more, uh, predominant these days. That must involve red tape like you've never seen before, surely, to deliberately light a fire in Australia. Um, I've, I've been lucky in the courses that I've burnt on that uh, the local council has been supportive of it. Um, so it's not as though we're just piling up <laughs> some old sticks and, and putting a match to it. So uh, we actually, um, you know, we, we put the story forward that it's for um, enhancing biodiversity, the ecology on the golf course. Um, and generally they support us. Generally they might come along as well, help <laughs> us out. Um, and then, um, as you've seen in a few of my social media posts, that the the results that we've obtained by these burns has just been magnificent. So that sort of shows you um, how well fire does does do. I'm going to let Kate go. Harley, you're going to stick around. Kate, it's been fantastic to talk to you uh, and meet you. Kate Torgerson, tell people where they can find you on social media and websites and all those other places. Not your actual address. That would be crazy. <laughs> no, uh, Environmental Golf Solutions. So if uh, you Google that or look us up on Facebook and Instagram, um, yeah, you'll definitely find all the information there. Or people can just look in the show notes, Kate. Oh, I've got a little tear for Adrian. Then he loves the show notes and, and creating things for me to put in the show notes. I'll put some links in the show notes for uh, where people can find you and uh, and follow along on this journey. And as I said, I think the work you're doing in 50 years' time, people will look back and think it's much more important than anything that captures our attention on a day-to-day basis in the game. So thank you for that. Congratulations. Good work. Keep it up. I'm sure this one isn't the last time we'll talk, but it's been lovely to catch up and meet today. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time, Rod, and thanks, Harley. See you, Kate. Kate Torgerson there from uh, Environmental Golf Solutions Australia. Thank you, Kate. As I said, we'll talk again. Harley, something Kate just said to me there when uh, towards the end there, she was talking about you know people coming around to seeing the value of what they're doing. It feels to me like probably the most important thing about it, do those golfers then go out in the community and start to spruik what is happening at the golf course? That might be the important part. Might it not? They're at a barbecue. Someone's talking about golf. They've seen something in America in the news about a golf course doing something, and the golfer themselves say, "Well, actually, that's not the whole story." Yeah, I think you're right, and I think um, so. It's it's communicating um, uh, what Kate does and and what I do is if we can com- communicate this to members. And I, I, look, this has also come out of our COVID world. Is uh, is golf clubs are having to communicate to their members. Um, via uh, videos that they get made and then they put up there for members to download and watch. And there's a lot of uh, 
members downloading and watching some of these videos. So if golf courses are taking the opportunity to uh, communicate what's going on the golf course, what's happening with the environment, starting to uh, give out that clear message of of sustainable golf and, and programs on the golf courses around sustainability, ecology and environment, that message starts to come through to the members those members are talking to other members, talking to their friends and, and bringing the message through. So I think, I think, uh, and I, look, I've been involved with that experience at a golf club here in Sydney where we, we did a video and we had sort of eight clear points around what the intent was with the environmental initiatives of the golf course. Uh, and I would say seven out of 10 members have seen this video uh, and now get the message and said to me, love what you're doing, love what you're going to do. And, and I think um, those messages are sort of, been perpetuated through the membership and obviously perhaps at the barbecue at home or chats with their friends uh, from other clubs or or other areas. So um, I think we're in an exciting time of being able to get this knowledge and message through over the next few years. Yeah, you mentioned something there, you touched something there that I think is probably also important, other clubs. What we do constantly in golf as golf club members and golfers is compare. Absolutely. That club down the road does this, why doesn't our club do that? For the most part, that's not been a necessarily particularly healthy thing because it's always focused on, well, their playing surfaces are so much better than ours or greener or their bunkers are better. If this is the sort of message where one club starts it and other clubs start to say, well, we better do that or we seem to be falling behind, it's our movement start, isn't it? And that's a real positive, potentially. Absolutely. I think so. I think uh, this, we've got to get that message out. And look, even this chat today with Kate, I think it's all part of that uh, getting the, some of the thoughts, some of the discussions, some of the knowledge out there. And, and so uh, I think it's really valuable. Last thing, and this is well beyond your area of expertise, it's more of just a general question to throw out there for all of us to think about. It's fantastic for us to talk about this stuff on our golf podcast. It's not doing anything outside of the golf bubble. How do we do that? I, I think, uh, well, if we, if we take our showcase golf events, um, Australian Open, PGA, um, and similar to what Golf Environmental Organization have done with some of the, uh, the European events is to look at um, you know, some of the sustainability measures around the golf event itself. And if we look at the sustainability measures around the Australian Open, for example, and highlight those and profile those and, and ensure that we do have the Australian Open at a golf course that is a great model for this. And you know, obviously this year's Australian Open was meant to be at Kingston Heath and hopefully we're seeing it in the first quarter of next year. That is a great example of, of a club that's um, put a lot of effort into its sustainability, into its environment, into, in, into its landscape. A club that its floral emblem was the heath and they only were down to one plant and they have an a, a, a environmental manager there, a guy called Pete Murray. He's a bit of a rock star, I think, in, in this whole area. A uh, uh, humble guy that goes about his work in a great way and he's turned that golf course around in terms of some of this vegetation and and had, has seen this particular heath getting propagated and it's very difficult to propagate. You might get 12 plants one year. He could take thousands if he, if he could and you might get 30 the next year, 100 the next and back to 12 the next year in terms of propagating. But it's a, uh, I think if we can do it, have the event like the Australian Open and showcase and profile some of the environmental initiatives in a bit of the downtime of the broadcast and just pan through and have some interviews and profiling what's going on there, I think that can send them a really good message out to the non-golfers who might be might be you know just watching the game on the screen. And uh, it arms the golfers who are interested in this stuff with things that they can take to the non-golfers when they yeah. make their, well, hang on a minute, you might have missed this. This was on the broadcast of the golf this week. This is what they're doing at Kingston Heath, so it gives us some information. Absolutely. Endlessly fascinating game to both play and be interested in this one, Harley. It often reminds me of a hairball. As soon as you tug on something over here, something over there seemingly completely unrelated moves. And you know, hang on a minute, these things are all interrelated with each other. It's been great to unpick some of it today with both Kate and yourself. Fantastic job as co-host, my friend. And Logue, uh, you are under some pressure if you're listening. You better lift your game, my friend. been great to have you along. Really appreciate it today, mate. Thank you, Rod. It's been great. Episode 47, done and dusted. A little bit late, but I hope you, like me, think that it was worth the wait. We'll be back again to do it all again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast. Good Good Golf Podcast.